Welcome to New Hope's teaching podcast. This is an excerpt from our Sunday morning service. Visit newhopepdx.org teaching for notes, worship, and church announcements. Stay up to date with our teaching series and events by downloading our app. Just text New Hope PDX app to 77977. Enjoy this week's lesson. Let me start with uh, this question. What is it? What does it mean when we say something or someone is iconic? We're like, that, that's iconic. What does that mean? Well, icon can mean a, a symbol that represents something greater. So some of those symbols will come on the screen here. Let's see, I bet you know them. Yeah, right? I don't know if that's something greater, but you know the point. Uh, another icon, right? Uh, just do it. Athletes, that's what it, that's Disney, right? Mickey Mouse. It's, it's like so deeply interesting. This is one of my favorite icons because of what it gives to my <laughs> senses. It awakens me. Uh, this means like don't be stupid with fire, right? That kind of deal. Uh, this means very expensive phones. Uh, it's, it's, I guess what it means. Uh, and, uh, and then uh, we, we have also the idea of in icons, not just a symbol, but we also use the term of people. So we say that person is an icon or that person is iconic. And we mean the same thing, that they're representing something greater. When we see them or see a picture of them, it evokes something greater. So here's some examples of that. You'll know this. Muhammad Ali evokes, you know, the iconic athlete. Uh, We have... uh, Mother Teresa is iconic for compassion or mercy or being like Jesus. Uh, Next, we have uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s iconic of activism or or the civil rights movement. Uh, Another icon we have is uh, Homer Simpson. Uh, icon of cluelessness or something like that. I don't know, whatever you would, you would, you would think of that. So we have, we have all these, these icons, and I think in, in both instances, I want to get it in your mind how deeply entrenched these things are. I would define an icon like this, a symbol uh, of, that represents something greater or, or, uh, or someone that represents something greater. So to be iconic is to represent something greater than yourself. So I want you to think about that because we're really going to move into that definition as it expounds itself in a biblical sense today. We're going to talk about what it looks like to be iconic in the, very, uh, in, the very, in the very sense of what we were created to do. We're in the third and final week of a little sub-series that kicked off our fall uh, year called The Lost Gospel. As I shared, I wanted to call it The Shrunken Gospel, but that doesn't mark it very well. But that's what we're talking about. So we've been discussing how we, we have a problem in the church and with followers of Jesus. And I've been putting forth to you that I think the central problem is that most of us have a shrunken gospel. And how I've been defining it is this. Uh, the gospel that we believe and we tell one another is that we're bad, we're sinful, and Jesus died for us so we can go to heaven when we die. Now, that's true. And that's part of the gospel but it's just a small part. It's an incomplete part. And if that's our only gospel, it's not enough to hold us together as the church. It's not enough to transform us as people, as disciples, and it's not enough to transform the world. So I think the problem is we have the shrunken gospel and we gotta expand it and we gotta realize that it's bigger and more beautiful than we could ever, ever imagine. So we've been diving into that. And uh, last week we looked at the idea of 
we have to understand the enormity of the problem of what is wrong before we can understand the enormity of what is right. So we talked about sin and that the gospel doesn't just address the fact that we broke shalom with God, but we also broke it with one another and we also broke it with the world. The gospel is that big that it comes in and doesn't just fix your personal situation so you can go to heaven when you die, which is essentially you're just waiting to die. But the gospel is about why we are called to live. And that's what we're going to focus on like a laser beam today, that the gospel gives us reason to live. That's what I'm going to try to prove to you today. I hope that I will be effective. So let me pray for us. And then Hannah will come up and read our scripture. God, thank you uh, so much for the good news, or as we've been saying, the good story that we're called into. And it's not a story that we're just saved so we can wait till we die to be with you. The gospel is a way that we can get into heaven before we die. We can begin to experience life and vitality and kingdom come here and now. And I'm so excited to talk about what that looks like today. I pray, God, against distraction, forgive us because we are a distracted people. And I pray that we wouldn't worry about the phones in our pockets or what went on yesterday or what's coming later today or how our fantasy football team is doing. That's my own confession, God. And we just pray that you'd allow us to be present with you in this place. It's a holy, sacred space that your spirit would have its way with us shape us into the type of people you want us to be, captivate our minds and our hearts, and I pray that we would not leave today unchanged. Help us to understand, God, protect this space in our minds and our hearts from the evil one. Thank you for your word and the power of your word. May it come alive on us right now as we hear it. We pray in Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Amen. 2 Corinthians 3, 18 through 4, verse 7. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God said, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Hannah. So the shrunken gospel story goes something like this. Like, we were in the garden. We talked a lot about that last week. And everything was good. And then we messed up. Remember, it's not Adam and Eve's story. It's our story. We would have done the same thing. We mess up, and now everything's bad, and we're bad. And then Jesus has to come and die because we're bad. So we can pray a prayer. 
so that one day when we go to heaven after we're dead, we can be good again. Well, it's not not exactly good news. I mean, it is good news, but it's shrunken. It's incomplete. It doesn't captivate the soul. It doesn't transform our lives. It doesn't transform our churches. It doesn't transform our communities. The good thing is that's not the gospel story. So let me try to pull it all together. We, we spent a ton of time in scripture the last two weeks. We've gone at it a lot of different ways. Let me just try to pull it together for you and really hone in on this idea that the gospel gives us a reason to live. So I would say the gospel story is something like this. I think this is faithful to what Jesus would have said or the writers in the New Testament. So God creates us. We're created in his image. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, things are shalom. They're right. They're as they should be. And then we participate with evil. We, we choose to go our own way. We try to play God. We grab for the throne. We think we know better than God. And it is like dropping a bomb in the Garden of Eden. And so we have to go back to realize what God created. And one of the essential ideas in the, in the Old Testament in Genesis 1 and 2, and Old Testament scholar John Walton writes a lot about this, but other people who are experts in the ancient Near East said, if you were an original reader, and we have to focus on that. Remember, the Bible wasn't written to us before. So the original readers, if they would have seen Genesis 1 and 2, they would have understood that God was in his temple. It's crystal clear, they say, according to how people talked about God. So God is in his temple, and God's temple is earth. And that may seem like a throwaway. It's super, super important for what it means to us. So if God is in his temple and the temple is earth and God is ruling and reigning in his temple, and that's what we see in Genesis 1 and 2, everything's wonderful, God's ruling and reigning in his earth temple, but here's the really key idea that we miss. God creates us, me and you and Adam and Eve to rule with him in his temple. This is essential. And I'm not just making this up, so let's go back to a passage we read last week. This is a really pivotal passage as it goes to human identity. God created humans to rule over his creation. And here's how we see it. God created mankind, humanity, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. That's a a piece of poetry in the original Hebrew, kind of the first piece of poetry. And it says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, number, fill the earth, and here's our job, and subdue it, or have dominion over it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over ever-living creature that moves on the ground. So here's our story. Here's the gospels that's unfolding. Adam and Eve and us were created in God's image to rule in God's temple, which is the earth. That's how we were intended to be. That's how it was all intended to work. So to know what we're trying to get back to, we have to understand where things started. So this word, we looked at this word image a little bit in the Hebrew. The word is used in two ways. This phrase, image of God, would have popped in the original listener's mind in two ways. This phrase was used for just straight up idols, just pieces of carved wood or stone that were set up meant to represent something greater, a God somewhere, or probably more commonly, they were used to refer to kings, who ruled over lands because the king's a human person. They can't be everywhere, so they would set up figures and images of God, they were called, all over their kingdom. And when you saw that image of God, it was meant to evoke the authority and the rule and the presence and the power of that king. Here's a famous example. It's called uh, the Lamasu. 
And uh, this, is, this is a real thing. We see these guys, we find these things in archaeology, and they would be set outside of temples. They would be set at the city gates. So when you enter in, you immediately think, that's the face of a ruler, of a king. But it, kings also believe themselves to be gods a lot of times. So this is how the idea would come. Here's the revolutionary thing that Genesis 1 and 2 says to us. And it truly is transforming. You may not feel it right now, but I'm going to try to spend the next half an hour proving it to you. The, the revolutionary thing is that not only kings can be in the image of God, and in fact, they're false images of God, but God has created all of us to be kings and queens. That's the truth of the gospel. So God has said, I created you in my image, all of you, to rule as kings, to uh, reflect and radiate my power and presence, to bring order to chaos, to bring and cultivate life where there is no life, but God also calls us to be priest. This idea of we're in his temple, the earth, and priests care for the temple. They take care of the temple. They bring order to the temple where there's chaos and there's mayhem and there's not shalom. The priests set in and make it right. So the essential calling and creation of all of us is to be kings and queens Priest, priestesses, that idea. This is really, it's mind-boggling stuff, but we see it throughout Scripture. Now, immediately when I say rule, we think of bad rulers, and we think of power dynamics as Americans who don't like to be ruled by anyone. That's what comes to our mind, so we got to unpack that a little bit. What does Scripture say when it calls us and creates us to rule? Well, it means within the context of goodness, within the context of being governed by God's Spirit for God's glory and not our own. Because we reflect and we radiate someone greater. So here's a good example. David's, uh, King David's almost very last words from 2 Samuel. Here's a good example of what it looks like to rule within the context of goodness for the good of others. David says this at the very end of his days. David did a lot of terrible things. So he gets it at the end. When one rules over people in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God or in the taking God seriously, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. That's what communities of Jesus followers should look like. That's what followers of Jesus should evoke in people as their kings and queens and priests in God's temple, the earth, as we go forth and manifest our call to be made in the image of God. That people would say, wow, you're like the light of the morning at sunrise on a cloudless day. I mean, that's the kind of thing. Is that what people are saying about the church right now? No. And so that's what we got to understand this. So God gives this to Adam and Eve. Did it go well? This is participatory. You can answer. This is really low-level theology. So did it go well? It went horribly. They did, not, they did not image God. They were not good image bearers. Sin broke not only their relationship with God last week, but their relationship with one another, shame, blame, and their relationship with the world. They could no longer be image bearers the way they were called to be. They had a distorted image. In the, in the Greek, the Greek word for this, and you see image all over the New Testament, the Greek word is icon, but with an E, and it's where we get our word icon. So our story is, the gospel story is that we were meant to be icons representing someone greater, but now we're cracked icons. Sin cracked us, and it cracked our relationship with God, with one another, 
and the world. So God puts them out of the garden, which was an act of mercy because the tree of life is there. God doesn't want them, you know, snacking on the tree of life and forever locked in this cracked icon state. So he sends them out to do the best they can do imaging him, to bring uh, order to chaos and bring life to darkness. <laughs> it did not go well. Just read Genesis. So then, interesting, fast forward a little bit. We come to Abraham. God, God calls forth Abraham. God's like, okay, I'm going to bring this people together, and maybe they can image me to all nations. Uh, and here's interesting enough, and I think in Exodus 19, God says that I'm calling you to be a kingdom of priests. See, it goes back to Genesis 1. God's trying to give it a go with his people. Now, here's where you can participate again. How did it go? Did it go well? No. It was a dumpster fire, to bring back that term from last week. And it still is. And so God, God continues. He continues to drive forth on that promise that he gave Adam and Eve last week that he would send the snake crusher to make everything right, and finally Jesus shows up on the scene. Well, what do the writers of Scripture say again and again and again about Jesus? John 1, Colossians 1, 2 Corinthians 3, Philippians 2, on and on and on. They call Jesus the true icon. They're like, he's finally come. You guys can't figure it out, so I'm literally going to put on flesh and come and show you how to be human. And then we see, what is Jesus called? He's not only the king, but he's the king of kings. And he becomes king on the cross where he's crowned. That's his inauguration. And his death crushes evil and sin and all iniquity, making us right with God, one another, in the world. That's the potentiality of it. So he's not only the king of kings, but he's also called in Hebrews the high priest. So Jesus is coming and showing us exactly what it means to be human. So again, back to week one, our gospel definition. The gospel is an invitation for anyone and everyone to trust Jesus the Christ as their life-giving king and enter his kingdom today and join him and partner with him in making all things right. That is the full gospel. That's not the shrunken gospel. So then we see all these passages, and we're going to get into one that, that Hannah read right away here, where the Spirit of God is coming in to all of our hearts and slowly but surely as we participate with the Spirit of God, we're not waiting until we die to experience life. The Spirit of God is coming into us and creating in us as individuals, but more so as communities, back into the true icon of God. Back to our original calling to be kings and queens in the temple, which is the earth, to radiate and reflect God's power and God's presence, to bring order to chaos and to cultivate life where there is death, it's coming full circle. If you don't believe me, go all the way to the end of Revelation. This is just one of many passages in Revelation that speak this, but this is crystal clear. This is, this is the song that is sung over Jesus in one of the many scenes where songs are sung over Jesus. This is what they sing. You have made them, that's the church, that's us, New Hope, you have made them to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God. And what does it say? And they will reign in heaven. Is that what it says? No. <laughs> they will reign on earth. Even when we die, it's just a holding place. We're coming back here, people. So all this foolishness about it, just let it go, it's going to burn, it's, that's not biblical. We're coming back here. We're called to start it now. The broken icon is being reassembled, is being made whole. And that's happening in every single one of us in this room. 
The gospel isn't about waiting to live. The gospel gives us a reason to live. It calls us and equips us to be fully human again. If you want more on this, because I know for some of you, you're like, the first time I started to hear this stuff, because I wasn't, I didn't grow up with this kind of thing, but it's ruthlessly biblical. Our friend uh, Tim Mackey, The Bible Project, just go on Bible Project and Google image of God. There's videos, there's podcast of Tim talking. Tim and I used to have these conversations on the trail when we backpack, and it would blow my mind then. I'd want to argue with it, but like, he did it. It's true. It's biblically true. So there's a lot of stuff there if you want to dive deep, but I would start with the Bible. All right, let's go back to the passage that, that Hannah read earlier. Now I think the passage will make sense. Not that it didn't when you read it, Hannah. That's not your fault. But context, right? Context matters. So now with the story, the full gospel story there, let's go back to it. And one other little, little tidbit before we, we dive into the passage, and, and, and New Testament readers would have known this. The immediate they heard the first verse, which was uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18, they would have thought of Exodus 32. And maybe you know the story. I can tell it quickly, but it's important for context. So in Exodus 32, God's people are not being good image bearers. So Moses is like the mediator between God and the people, goes up on the holy mountain and gets these rules for how to be image bearers. It's like, okay, you guys are like cracked icons. We got to give you a lot of rules to help you reflect. So he, you know, he gives them the rules. And then while he's getting those, what do the people do? You may know the story. They, they pull their jewelry together, melt it down, and make a what? A, a, they make an image of God. Now, here's the irony. The scriptures tell us from the beginning, and don't make images. Why? Now you know the answer. Because you're the image. You don't need to make them. God made you. Here, here's the irony of Exodus 32. Moses is getting instructions on how they can better image God, and they're making some ridiculous image and dancing in front of it and worshiping it. It's It's lunacy. And Moses is incensed, and God's incensed, and the only reason God doesn't just annihilate all of them, which if I was God, I would have, so thank goodness, God remembers his covenant promises. He remembers the snake crusher promise that he would stay with him. I can just picture God, probably not with gritted teeth, that's how I picture, like, ah, these people, you got to stay faithful to them. So Moses goes back up to the mountain, atones for the people, gets new instructions on how to be image bearers. And then there's this weird scene where Moses is like, hey, God, can I see your glory? And God's like, no one can see my glory and live. No broken person can see my glory and live. But I will pass by you, and you hide in the cleft of the rock, and God tells him his name and that he's, you know, patient and, 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 and compassionate and all that kind of It's that scene. So then Moses emerges from the rock, comes down. I don't even know if Moses knows it, but it says in Exodus 32, his face is shining with the glory of God. What a cool scene to see. And it blinded the people. These people that are chasing after foolishness and not being image bearers and forgot that they were kings and queens and priests. And they couldn't handle it, so Moses had to put a veil on his face. They couldn't stand the glory of God. That's the scene. So back to what Hannah read. Now this is going to make sense. For the original readers, they would have been like, oh, I see what you're doing, Paul. This is what he says. Let's go back to 3.18. Such an important verse for all of us. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed. This is true for you into his image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Paul declares because of Jesus and the work of Jesus as a true icon on the cross, we can now stare God's glory in the face and not get annihilated. That's incredible. Furthermore, and even more encouraging, is the transformation God's doing in us. 
Paul goes on, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. For the God of this age, the evil one, the snake, has blinded the minds of those who do not believe. So they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. People who don't believe have their eyes blinded by evil. They can't see that Jesus is the true icon. And that's what we gotta pray for people that God will remove those blinders. We gotta advocate and tell the good story and live the good story. And how can that happen? Paul tells us, for what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord and ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. Now he quotes Genesis. He's pulling it all the way back to our original call. Let light shine out of the darkness and God made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Jesus. But we have this treasure in jars of clay show that all surpassing power is from God and not from us. Paul tells us, this is, I don't know if you're getting it, but this is astounding that what God did at the beginning, calling a light out of the darkness, showing his glory and how he created and ruled his temple, radiating his power and presence, that is happening in you. If you're willing, that's happening in you. That's happening in me. It's slow, but it's sure. That's what Paul's telling us. We can not only stare God's glory in the face, but God's glory has entered into us and is transforming this cracked icon into a human that can actually reflect and radiate the power and presence of God. Then actually come in and partner with King Jesus today in bringing order to chaos and cultivating life where there is no life at all. That is not a shrunken gospel. Can I get an amen? I mean, that's incredible if we believe it, if we enter into it and participate with it. Paul goes on later and he kind of sums it up in I think, uh, I think it's uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He just sums it up and he's like, you're new creations. You're new creations. Everything that was ever broken is being made right again. And we're invited to that party. That's the call of the church. All right, a couple, couple of things, life lessons from really kind of spanning over these couple weeks, that, but particularly today. Uh, life lesson number one is the gospel, the full gospel, not the shrunken gospel, declares that we are glorious. It declares that we're glorious. The, the shrunken gospel often, I don't think this is the intent of people when they tell it, because there is certainly good news and truth there, but it often has the effects of when you hear it, you just think you're horrible and you've messed everything up and you're the worst thing ever. I think the effect of the shrunken gospel sometimes is you feel like a piece of junk and, and your eyes are cast down in shame and that's not, that's not what the gospel is trying to do by any stretch of the imagination. Our family, uh, one of our favorite family movies uh, from a couple years ago is The Greatest Showman. Anybody seen The Greatest Showman? It's like a musical. I was really skeptical at first when our girls wanted to watch it. I was like, yeah, I don't know, Hugh Jackman singing. I don't know if I want to do that. It's incredible. And we, we love the soundtrack. At, at some point a few years ago, our girls, and, and many of us and probably knew a lot of the lyrics from many of the songs. So the story is, is kind of a retelling of P.T. Barnum's story. I don't think it's super accurate. But Hugh Jackman uh, plays P.T. Barnum. He kind of fails in a business venture. And then he opens this kind of weird wax museum. He's kind of a creative guy, and it just doesn't take off. So he just starts adding live acts. And a lot of these live acts are what people in his day would consider outcast or, or freak shows. And so he adds all these odd people, but beautiful people, super gifted people, human people. And the story's about how they cultivate community 
And in their success, because the show then just takes off, they learn what it is to love. They learn what it is to be loved. They learn what it is to be human. I would put forth that The Greatest Showman is a gospel story. One of uh, the most popular songs, I'm sure you probably heard at some point on the soundtrack, is This Is Me. Are you familiar with that song? I'd like to sing a few, I'm just kidding, I'm not gonna, <laughs> like, that would not be beautiful. So um, here's a couple lines, and I want you to think along the line of our story, of what we're caught up in. So here, here's a couple, this, I think this is the first verse, because we don't want your broken parts, I've learned to be ashamed of all my scars. Run away, they say, no one will love you as you are. And then this is the chorus, they keep repeating, but I won't let them break me down to dust. I know that there is a place for us, for we are what? Glorious. This is Bible stuff. Another verse, another round of bullets hits my skin, will fire away, because today I won't let the shame sink in. We're bursting through the barricades and reaching for the sun, for we are warriors. Yeah, that's what we've become. And again, the chorus, won't let them break me down to dust. I know there's a place for us, for we are glorious. The, the woman who sings it, Kiala Settle is her name, and she plays the bearded lady in the movie. Pretty remarkable story. She talks about getting the part and landing the part. She's not very well known. I think she has a Broadway background. And she said that that was her story growing up. She was bullied. And so it was a very, very personal thing. There's this remarkable video online. Some of you may have seen it. I think it's been viewed by like 48 million people or something crazy like that. But it's, they got to make uh, videos of the songs and stuff to try to get funding for the movie. So this is one of the very early videos. So the cast is settled. Kiala Settle is going to sing This Is Me for the first time. And so the piano player's there, everyone's there, like 50 people in the room. And she starts, if you watch the video, uh, she starts to just sing it very timid, like you're wondering, like, I don't know if this is the right person for the part, does she even have a good voice? She's, she's, and then she's starting, she's crying. And so she's working through it, a very, and then she starts to realize what it's saying, she starts to realize how it applies to her, she starts to realize that she's glorious, and boy, it comes. And so like, she starts belting, and this place, I can't even describe it, it just breaks into a party. The chorus breaks out and people are standing on chairs and they're swaying and they're talking and dude, she is bringing it. And then she gets to the very end, it kind of, it, how the song's written, it kind of oscillates back down and, and she gets emotional again. And she, she struggles to get through the last verse and at a, at, a, at a stage, stage left, you see Hugh Jackman's hand come out. You don't even see it's him and he grabs her hand. And then it, the camera goes to him and she finishes and he just looks up and points to the heavens. It's, it's like a worship song. This is what the gospel is telling us, it, that you're glorious. If you don't believe it, if you think I'm just making it up out of some you know, movie, here's Psalm 8. What is humanity that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You've made them a little lower than the angels. You have crowned them with what? What? Glory and honor. You've made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all the flocks and herds, all the animals of the world, the birds of the sky, the fish in the sea, all that swim in the paths of the sea. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your, excuse me, is your name in all the earth. C.S. Lewis, this is a frequent theme in almost all of his writings. If you've read the Space Trilogy, which is awesome, you'll see it there. Many of you are familiar with Chronicles of Narnia. When the kids went into Narnia, what did they become? Kings and queens, and princes, and princes. They're ruling with Aslan, who is Jesus. C.S. Lewis got this. This is one of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes. It's a little longer, but it, oh my gosh, it's powerful. I want you to think about this idea of not, not only you're glorious, that's egocentral, all of us are. 
So right now as I read this quote, I want you to think about the person that you think has the least possibility on earth as being glorious. <laughs> You're like, not, not a fan. You know? I want you to think about this. Listen to what Lewis says about humans. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may be one day a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all of our friendships, all of our loves, all of our play, all of our politics. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Holy moly. The gospel is awesome. And that's one of our values here at New Hope. People. People. Everyone has dignity and worth. Even the people that you don't like, even the people that are different than you. I would say especially the people that are different than you. Secondly, the gospel declares that we are a, a work in progress. And the gospel allows for our cracks and our crevices and our imperfections every step of the way. That's the beauty of the gospel. If you don't believe me, just think about literally, except for maybe one or two people, think about literally anyone in scripture. <laughs> literally, start with Adam and Eve and go to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I mean, sometimes I don't want our girls to read the Bible because it's so crazy. The things that people do. King David, I mean, are you kidding me? Aunt, the disciples. Think about the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church was, that, that's where the passage came from. They were so messed up that they make messed up churches today look normal. And yet Paul's preaching that to them. He's reminding them who they are. There's space for your brokenness. There's space for mine. That's another one of our values here is grace and change. We're works in progress. It makes me think of kintsugi. I don't know if you know that artistic form, but it's a Japanese pottery form that when we break pottery, and my wife's a potter, so we, I've seen it broken before, we think it's junk. We throw it in the trash can. You can't fix it. The Japanese art form of kintsugi takes a lacquer that's made of, of gold dust or silver dust sometimes and comes into the cracks and crevices and repairs them. I think there's some, some visual examples. So that what is reformed, this is what the Japanese people believe, what is reformed is more beautiful than before it was cracked. That's the gospel, everyone. That's the gospel. And this is true. Like, read the scriptures along this. Within the cracks and crevices of all of our lives is where the glory of God is most manifest. If you didn't have cracks and crevices, they would think that you're literally the deal. No, we're pointing to someone who is greater. So within our brokenness and cracks and crevices, the glory of God shines through. That's Paul saying, you're jars of clay. That's it. Paul talked about in his writings that he delighted in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties because that's where the power and presence of God radiated. Where was the power and presence of God most evident ever? On a cross. I have a business idea, and some of you are business people can help me. Somebody's probably stolen this by now, but T-shirts and hats that just say, be kind, I'm a work in progress. Something like that. Because we... We understand what work in progress means, but do we? And I think the gospel calls us to be kind to each other and be generous and to tell the better story. Finally, this is the main idea I want you to get. We're gonna end with kind of this idea. The gospel gives us a reason to live. 
The shrunken gospel gives us a reason to die. But the gospel gives us a, a reason to live. What does it mean if I ask you, just had a theological conversation with you, just worked the, the lobby out there and said, what do you think it means to be made in the image of God? You would likely say something like, well, the breath of God's in me. Um, uh, I have characteristics like God or I have a soul or spirit. Now, that's biblically not untrue. All of that's true, although the breath of God passage is a different passage. That's, that's, that's one passage later. But that's not what the writer, what God means when he says the image of God. That's just not. The image of God is not characteristics of God. It's not having a soul, although all that's true. The image of God's a job. The image of God is you're created to rule. You're created to be kings and queens and priests in God's temple, which is the earth. What does that look like? I think that looks like gardening. How many gardeners do we have in the room? Anybody ever done gardening? Well, we got like six gardeners in the entire church. Like a bunch of you garden. You understand the concept of gardening. I mean, it's in the garden that we started with. I think some, some examples lose their efficacy over time. This one doesn't. This is a great example of what it looks like metaphorically and I think also like in real life to, to be gospel people. Gardeners come in and literally bring order to chaos. Gardeners come in and literally cultivate life where there is no life, and where there is life, they work to cause it to flourish. I don't know if you've heard of the Great Green Wall in Africa. It's a, it's a huge band over 3,000 miles long and 620 miles wide that, that uh, straddles the, where the Sahara Desert is in the north and where the rest of the continent is in the south. And here's what's happening with the Sahara Desert. It's moving rapidly south, which is no good for a continent that, that's rapidly increasing in population. So uh, maybe 10, 12 years ago, a bunch of people all over the world said, we've got to stop it in its tracks. We've got to literally, in the, in the desert, build a great green wall. And so the great green wall is supposed to span from the Atlantic all the way to the Red Sea. And it's a bunch of nations together, partnered together, that are going to just plant trees and cultivate gardens. Well, they struggled. Uh, they, they planted millions of trees, and a lot of them died. Why? Because they weren't working with local farmers. They weren't working with local people who knew how to grow things in the desert. So they've reconstituted everything over the last five years and started to work with the local indigenous people. They've come up with these really cool circular gardens and all these different ideas of getting the right trees and the right bushes and the right irrigation, and now it's flourishing. 15% of it is done, and there's incredible success stories. Uh, Ethiopia has reclaimed 37 million acres of, of, of what was desert is now green space. This is incredible. When it's done, it will be the, the largest, uh, it will be the largest structure on earth, three times the size of the Great Barrier Reef. This is what we're called to people. This is what the church should be doing, not just planting trees, although that's great. Metaphorically, where are we building great green walls? In a world that's dying, in a world that needs life. Well, I think one of my favorite ministries around here started in, in Mount Scott, who, who's now part of New Hope. We're so grateful for that. It's called Neighbor to Neighbor. And we've talked about it a little bit, but I wanted to highlight it for a second because I was like, where is this happening in our church? This is one of the areas. It was started by men's ministry, I think back in 2012, uh, to care for widows and elderly in the church. Quickly expanded and it stopped being just a men's ministry thing. Everybody was invited in in 2018. It moved, it stays focused on, on, on widows and elderly in the church, but moved out in the neighborhood. And now we have a ton of partnerships in the neighborhood. Teams of three to five people from our church that go out and are building relationships with people, literally mow their grass, help repair this, help get this from here and move this from there and help people figure, and just love on people. 
So we're cultivating relationships. We launched uh, last month here, we had 60 New Hopers show up. Is that cool or what? It happens every second Saturday from 8.15 to noon. Come, you can go to our website, sign up, come. There's a little devotional in the morning, some food, and then boom, out we go. The city of Portland representatives were here for our launch. They're really interested in what's going on because our city needs help. I don't know if you've seen that. And they want to figure out how we can multiply this sort of thing. That's great green wall living. That's what being the church is. That's what being rulers and priests and that's what the gospel looks like, y'all. Seriously. That's exciting. That's enough to transform us. It's enough to hold us together in a world that's coming apart. And it's enough to transform the world. There's a, there's a scene from the, the movie Hook. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Hook. Uh, Robin Williams, late Robin Williams. And it's kind of a, a redo of the Peter Pan story. So in it, uh, Peter Pan's grown up, and Robin Williams is like this businessman that's just rude to his kids and doesn't play at all anymore. That's kind of, the, I forget how, I should have watched before I gave this illustration. I don't, I forget how he gets back to Neverland, but somehow he gets back. as like the guy in the business suit, you know, and suddenly, you know, Captain Hook is waging war on the Lost Boys, and, you know, everything's going south, and, and they're not sure that this is Peter Pan, because they're looking at him like, you're overweight, bro, and you're wearing a suit, and you don't have any fun. Like, you can't be Peter Pan. So there's a scene in the movie, you probably remember it, where uh, they're trying to vote to decide if he's Peter Pan or they're going to kill him or imprison him or something. So what of the Lost Boys draws the line in the sand, and Robert Williams over there just looking like a mess. And he's like, everybody on this side, if you think he's Peter Pan, or on that side, if you, well, everybody says no. It's self-evident this guy is definitely not Peter Pan. He doesn't even know how to fly. He's forgotten how to fly. And then there's one little boy. Does anybody remember the scene? One little boy. I think a picture's going to come up. And he walks up to him. He's like the cutest little kid. And he looks at his face. And he hold, pulls his cheeks like this. And, you know, does like this. And there's this. And then he looks deep in. And then he gets this huge grin on his face. And he says, there you are. And I feel like that's what the Spirit of God and the gospel does with us. We've forgotten who we are. The church has forgotten who we are. And the spirit of God looks deeply in us like, oh my gosh, this is hard to see in there right now. <laughs> there you are. What does it look like to become iconic? It would, it's our mission statement. It's to follow Jesus who is the true icon, who showed us how to live, who gave us instructions how to live and just follow him and share his love. That's what it looks like. And that's what we are absolutely devoted to at this church. And for the next nine weeks, we're launching the second part of the series where every week we're gonna look at an important topic like vocation or identity or money or death and we're gonna get into some of the divisive issues. And instead of just looking at it cleanly, we're gonna come into it with the context of this fuller gospel of, of, of kingdom people. And we're gonna talk about how do we step into this and how that topic gets absolutely transformed by the gospel. I'm super excited Super excited about it. What does the, the gospel do for us? It, it doesn't just teach us how to wait to die. It isn't just a transaction to get you into heaven. It's so much more. The gospel, the true gospel, it, it, it makes us iconic. It teaches us to be fully human again, and it gives us a reason to live. Let me pray for us. God, thanks for your faithfulness to us and giving us this gospel that I'm just barely beginning to understand, but I'm so excited to step into and have our community step into it, God, that we might be truly your body, 
that we might remember who we are because we have forgotten God and we confess that to you and ask your forgiveness that you've called us into this holy calling of being kings and queens, radiating and reflecting your power and presence to a world that so desperately needs to see your glory, bringing order to chaos, cultivating life where there is no life, caring for your temple, the earth, giving you glory, being fully human, being iconic, God. Thank you for that calling that's, that's more than enough to get us out of bed in the morning, I think. And I pray your spirit would come in. We can't do this transformation without your spirit. It's all dependent on you. So we pray, God, today, have your way with us. Have your way with this community. Have your way with each of us. Because this is a radical reorientation of everything we know. And we lay all of our stuff, our lives, our breath, our possessions, our money, our homes, everything is yours, King Jesus. And we pray that you transform us that we not only be able to look your glory in the face, but we would reflect and radiate your glory to a world that desperately needs to see it. We love you, God. Thank you for your son, Jesus. We pray this in his matchless name and all God's people said, amen. amen.